Welcome, everyone. This is Waking from the American Dream. This is Kelly Carlin. And uh, as you know, we uh, love to start our day with a little music. So I'm going to start today with a song that I've played actually here before. Uh, it's from my great friends, Travis Shook. And um, this is a song my dad used to play for me when I was a kid. So I was thinking about my dad today. So I thought I would play this. Here you go. If you'll forget it 
Okay, so I don't want you to like think inappropriate thoughts about my dad, like that whole front rub part, like that was never part of the appropriate part. But the thing about the song that made me think of my dad and kind of the theme for today is um, I was like a really moody kid um, for many reasons. But, you know, when you're a moody kid and my dad would try to make me laugh or try to try to get me to um, get out of my mood and he would sing, you know, I can see a little smile coming through. I can also see you trying not to let it. And, and, and I, it would just frustrate me because <laughs> it's, it's literally that thing when you're a kid and you don't want to give in to your parents. You want to keep your mood going and your poutiness. And the reason uh, it's the theme for today is because we're going to be talking uh, with someone about changing perspectives and par- paradigm shifting. And, um, you know, I think about this a lot, uh, you know, just not only in my own life, but I'm also a creative coach, a life coach, and I work with clients. And um, I'm always asking them, you know, what perspective are you in right now? What point of view, what voice is talking through you <laughs> of the many, many voices in your head? And... Um, you know, when they say it's an inside job, which, you know, I hate those little phrases, but, uh, you know, that's what that means. It's like, what perspective are you in? And and what are you clinging to? What are you hanging on to that's keeping you limited, keeping your thoughts limited, or actually keeping you stuck in a vortex of emotion that isn't healthy and isn't positive for you? Um, and, you know, it's, it's interesting. It's so funny. Like last week I was talking about how I had separation anxiety because my husband was going out of town for three and a half weeks. And then of course, like the minute he leaves, there's no anxiety because the reality of him being gone is, you know, there's nothing in it that's terrifying or frightening in any way, shape or form. Um, if anything, it's kind of nice, you know, I got the house to myself, I can do what I want, I don't have to worry about how, you know, what we're gonna eat to dinner together, I can have a peanut butter and jelly sandwich if I want. But of course, you know, the anxiety version in my head last week was, I don't know, you know, the whole world was going to fall apart, and the walls were going to come down. And of course, there was nothing specific I was terrified of, but there was clearly something subconscious. So really, you know, this, this question about, you know, what thoughts are driving you? What thoughts are in the driver's seat? Uh, what perspective runs you? Um, and and what, what story are you living? Whose story are you living? Whose version of reality are you plugged into and, and, and motivated by? Is it really yours? Or is it your parents? Or is it the culture's? Uh, is it Lady Gaga's? <laughs> and certainly the question, you know, or the the phrase waking from the American dream, you know, it's like, whose American dream are you living into? Um, so just thinking about that today, uh, because I have a really cool guest. I have a gentleman named Will Arnst, who is a film producer, director and writer. And uh, he is, I'm sorry, I'm just, un- I'm, I'm, unmuting him here. And uh, Will Arntz uh, is best known for producing a uh, 2004 groundbreaking film called What the Bleep Do We Know? And in that film, they investigated the power of the mind-body connection and the whole idea of uh, how your thoughts, uh, uh, you know, create your perceived reality and then how it even affects your actual body and the chemistry and the biology inside of your body. And now Will is involved in a really cool new project called Ghetto Physics. Uh, Will the Real Pimps and Hoes Please Stand Up, <laughs> which I just love that title. Uh, and in this film, 
it's it's revealing this kind of invisible power dynamics that rule just about every interaction that we are involved with in the, in the world. Personal interaction, uh, global, consumer, uh, you name it. Uh, and certainly the pimps and hoes uh, understand this. So uh, welcome, Will. Welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me here. My my pleasure. Uh, Will is uh, up in the woods, uh, actually the mountains of Boulder, Colorado, so everyone just imagine that. <laughs> <laughs> so welcome. So Will, um, before we jump into ghetto physics and talking about the particulars of that uh, film and all the cool juicy stuff in there, I'd love to know how you got interested in all this kind of stuff and and what actually led you to want to make films about this stuff. Oh, well, that goes way, way back to high school when my friends and I were bored living in a little uh, cow town in Pennsylvania, and we decided we'd take Dad's uh, 8-millimeter camera and start making movies. Mm. So that's what I did for fun, and then in college did it for fun, and I had this dream of wanting to be a filmmaker. I thought that would be cool. Meanwhile, I go to school and graduate in math, physics, and engineering. Uh-huh. Then I got a job doing that. My first job out of college, I was a research laser physicist, of all things. Wow. Yeah, and so um, I did that. I needed a secret clearance to do it. Um, and so I did that, and then um, after doing that for a couple of years, I dropped out and became a hippie again. <laughs> well done. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, traveled around, and I started getting more and more interested in spiritual stuff and in metaphysics. Mm-hmm. And at first I wasn't interested at all, but I just, you know, I just sort of falling into it. I think it was a past life type thing, because um, certainly consciously I wasn't looking for it. Um, I got very uh, interested in that, and eventually I met, met a spiritual teacher who had everyone do computers as a way of transforming yourself, believe hmm. or not, and, wow. and it actually actually worked. And the uh, task eventually for the, uh, the students, there were about 200 of us, was to write a software product and sell it for millions, which I did. Having done all of that, um, I now had some money, and um, got interested in, you know, I've always been interested in the spirit and science. Those were my two major interests. Sure, yeah. And, and so, you know, around the year 2000, I got, um, I got interested. I was up at the Ramta's school up in Washington, and they were talking about a lot of this, and I just got the idea, I, I'm going to make a little documentary. I always wanted to make movies. I didn't know if I was any good or not, but mm-hmm. um, I started off as a little $50,000 talking heads documentary. Mm-hmm and started doing that and then kind of got carried away and then got really carried away and pretty <laughs> soon I'm dreaming of playing it in movie theaters around the world. And you did. And I did. Wow. Six million dollars later. Yeah, absolutely. It was a huge thing. I mean, I remember when and we're talking about the movie What the Bleep. Um, we call it What the Bleep, but I suppose the, whole, the full title is What the Bleep Do We Know? Uh, I remember when it came in the theater here in L.A. and being a seeker myself and someone who's very interested in metaphysics and the mind-body connection, uh, I was like, wow, this is playing at a theater? This is really cool. <laughs> Finally, something for my kind of audience. Well, that was part of the reason. Another reason that I wanted to make the movie, I was tired of being a second-class citizen because, you know, up until then I had been in a couple of spiritual practices that got labeled as cults. Right. And if people knew you were meditating, you were some sort of weirdo that was going to be drinking Kool-Aid and dying and, right. or whatever. Right, right. And I just I got really tired of that, and I said, no, there's a whole intellectual thing, a philosophical thing behind a lot of this, number one. And number two, I wanted to get everyone out of their metaphysical closets and get them out on the street into the public. And <laughs> a lot that. of people had that, that um, 
uh, experience that you did. It's like, oh my God, it's here in a real theater up on the big screen. Yeah, so. yeah, I love that. Come out of the metaphysical closet. I know myself when I started becoming a practicing Buddhist right after my mom died in 97, I felt like I was coming out of the closet too. It was like, uh, you know, because I've never been one for organized religion and uh, and certainly my dad's take on religion I always agreed with. You know, I don't really believe there's a, a bearded man in the sky who's looking down at me. But it's still coming out and talking about your, your own spiritual beliefs. I mean, even if you're not trying to sell anyone on them, feels like a very vulnerable thing to do. And it, and it is nice when you feel like there is community out there that at least is willing to take you at face value and, um, you know, not think that you're a nut job or part of a cult. Exactly. <laughs> well, I'm curious. Do you still feel that now when you talk about your spiritual whatever? Uh, feel what? Uh, feel like, you know, people may think you're a nut job or fear of You know what? Or... I, I, I do and I don't a little bit. I mean, I, I'm friends with some people who are, are kind of strident atheists and, um, you know, strident anything is always something you, you come up against. I mean, even if it was a strident fundamentalist. And I, and I don't so much anymore. Certainly living in Southern California, um, there's all breeds and all types here. And, I, and I'm very open open with it. Uh, but, you know, I like to have a real conversation with people about it. I don't like people assuming things about what I believe or who I am. Uh, and I certainly try not to do that with other people. So, but it is, it's still, it, you know, it can still feel like a vulnerable thing. Um, mm-hmm. let, let's get into uh, your, the new film, the new project, Ghetto Physics. Uh, will the real pimps and hoes please stand up? Uh, <laughs> it's such a, it's such a provocative title and it's great because I love provocative and I love uh the whole idea of you know like immediately you you go you know what the fuck are they talking about you know what is this movie about so so really what is this what is this pimp and hoe thing and 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 you know what what is this movie talking about well the the premise the original premise was um came up with uh E. Ray E. Raymond Brown who brought the project to me and he had written a book a uh, little, you know, self-published book on that. Decides he wants to make a movie. Somehow gets together an hour-long pilot. I get the pilot and see it and go, oh my god! And so his his basic premise was that on the streets. Now he's he's an African American who lives in South Central LA in the hood. Mm-hmm. And so his his take was, well, you know, the thing you see on the street with the pimp and the hoe is a very basic interaction that everyone knows what it is you know and knows the dynamics and everything that's the same thing that goes on on all levels you know corporate you know global religious levels you you name it that's a basic dynamic but no one ever talks about it partially because it's a shadow thing people don't really want to talk about talk about it but when you use that pimp and hoe um, language sort of talking about some advertiser or talking about some political figure it sort of cuts through all the bs <laughs> and it sort of, you know, says in a very basic way what's really going on. Yeah. So it, that's that's the idea. Yeah, and and it's it is it's so it's such a refreshing metaphor to use. And and really, one of the things I loved about the film was that he really does break it down and and breaks it down so that anyone on the street, you know, uh, can understand what he's talking about by, by using these metaphors. And, and, and he gets into some pretty complicated kind of metaphysics and applied philosophy kind of stuff that, uh, that he just, he, 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 he does, he breaks it down in such a way that it's, uh, 
it's completely accessible, which some of this stuff can, you know, make, you know, people sound like they're talking Latin or Greek half the time. Um, one of the things that I loved and, and well, well, before we get into that, um, so, so in the premise, there's hoes and there's pimps. So we know the pimp's job is to, well, take the money from the hoe. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, 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 and the hoe's job is to uh, do all the work. And get none of the pay, right? So uh, I, 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 you know, when I when I first heard the metaphor, I was like, oh, I don't know if this is going to work or not. But the thing that really fascinated me about this is the thing that he talks about, which is the game part of it, like like how it works, what the game really is. And you've got some incredible people you interview in the uh, in the in the movie, uh, Ice T being one of them, who. I, I'm gathered used to be a pimp. Yeah, he used to be. Uh huh. And so he, he gives us a little lesson in what what the game is and and what it is to be a pimp. So could you talk a little bit about like what is this game? How does this system work so well for the pimp? <laughs> well, well, really, what Ice T comes out and says, and you know, this was one of the things that got me when I first saw it. He goes, you know, the pimp does not master the art getting the hoe to buy him a diamond ring. He masters the art of getting in a woman's head and making her think that she wants to buy him a ring. He goes, and that's something that's so many, so beyond so many cats that really don't understand how to go into a woman's mind and move the furniture around. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, it's just the pimp is putting a mind, it's, it's a more of a mind game. You know, people, you know, I thought before I, I got into this project, that what the pimp did, it was more of a what they call guerrilla pimping, where it was like, you know, hey, I'm going to beat you up, you don't do this, that kind of thing. Right. But no, it's really, it's really a mental thing they get into, and one of the things pimps have is charisma. And, you know, I met and hung out with the, the pimps that we interviewed in the film, and yeah, there's definitely a charisma there. So it's a, it's a mind game. Well, that's where we start extrapolating it, because that's what happens, let's say, with advertising. You know, they somehow get in your mind and make you think that you really want that new car. You may not really want or need a new car, but if they can get into your mind and make you think you want it, then you're going you're gonna to do their bidding for them. And so that's really uh, an example of the analogy. Well, yeah, and it's, it's, it's really uh, what I was talking about earlier, but it's, it's such a powerful thing to really get that we are all being pimped at all day long. And we all kind of get that. I mean, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, advertising and corporate America and all that kind of stuff. But but when you really think about it, they are. They found a way to get inside of our head and screw with our worldview and screw with it enough to get us to believe that what we want is what we want. But it's really what they want. Yeah. And, and it's, you know, I, a couple of years ago, I was reading a book called American Mania, by a guy named Peter Wybrow, and he talks a little bit about this, but he talks about the fast food industry. It's the same thing. And for me, I stopped eating junk food when I realized it was like, every time I eat junk food, I think I'm winning because it's like, oh, it tastes so good, and ha-ha, I'm, I'm going against my diet, and I'm doing what I want, and I'm such a rebel. <laughs> and it's like, mm-hmm. no, the reality, Kelly, is you're completely supporting <laughs> This multi-global conglomerate thing that really does not care at all about your body. And when Mm. I made that shift and got that, that they had implanted that in my head that made me feel like, oh, I'm a little kid again, or I get to have a special treat because it's McDonald's French fries. When I got that that was not really my thought, but it was their thought, 
it completely shifted everything for me. It completely changed my relationship to to comfort food. It was quite a miracle. Mm-hmm. Now, that's, a lot of that stuff is fairly obvious. Where it gets more devious is the certain more sort of um, deeper ideas that uh, implanted in people's heads. And one of them is that feeling of powerlessness. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that feeling like if you're not rich and famous, you're a nobody. Yes. And, you know, how does that get put out there? Well, it's really interesting. Go to the supermarket. You're checking out the food. There's People Magazine and all these other things there. And there are the, you know, the beautiful people on there. And that's what it's all about is getting your picture up there. And if you're just a nobody in the checkout line, guess what? You're a nobody. And one of the tricks that people in power do is to disempower everyone. Because if you're in control, you don't want people making their own decisions. They may throw you out. They may not do your bidding. So one of the things, if you can convince people they're powerless, and then, you know, there's something in the film, we talked about bread and circus, mm-hmm. which was the ancient Roman thing, you know, where you give... Keep them distracted. Uh, free, <laughs> yeah, free bread, and, you know, and the Coliseum, right. and 55-inch TV, you know, blah, 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 that, that keeps the population fat, dumb, and stupid. And that's kind of... So that stuff is going on all the time of, of basically really messing with your feelings of self-worth, self-empowerment, all that stuff. And that's where, that's where in the film we're trying to get the people to say, wait a minute, look at all this stuff going on around you. Look at how it's, it's, it's seeping into your life without you looking. It's, like you said, it's obvious for the advertisers, yeah. but there's whole other layers going on. Well, and in America, it's, it's the air we breathe here. I mean, the, the name of my show is called Waking from the American Dream. I mean, the American Dream is one of those sales jobs on us all, you know? I mean, and, and, look, and you're looking at the housing market right now and what's happened the last you know, whatever that is, 15, 20 years, where suddenly it was like, oh, you should have a house. Everyone should have a house. Oh, oh you don't make any money. Oh, it's fine. Really, it'll be fine. And, you know, sold us this bill of goods, uh, you know, uh, people borrowing money that they don't, you know, really can't afford to, to borrow. And and it's true. It's like people, you know, it's it is it's it's the air we breathe here. And and yeah, you know, I live here in Hollywood. I live, I work in the business here. It's the same kind of thing. It's like, oh, you know, for many years it was like, oh, if I don't work on a sitcom, then I, I'm, I'm worthless in this town. You know, it, mm-hmm. I, I don't matter at all. Never mind that uh, working on a sitcom. Yeah, you'll make a lot of money, but you'll also have no life, <laughs> mm-hmm. no family, no health, no life, no mental health. You know, all of that. So yeah, it's, it's a very subtle thing. Um, I was curious, you know, the people who are in power, I'm always thinking about this. So I don't, I mean, maybe some do, but I don't really believe that people consciously in power think that they want to disempower people. I think a lot of people in power think they're, think they are kind of sort of empowering people and wanting to help them, but maybe they're doing it in ways that really, um, enrich themselves, uh, first, (laughs) Mm-hmm. And enrich, and then, and it's like, oh, and if you happen to get enriched too, oh, that's nice. Also, um, there's that thing in the movie where you guys talk about the fact that the um, the whore, the hoe, gets zero percent, gets nothing back. Right. So, I mean, what are your thoughts about that with like people in power? I mean, is this is, a, is this an unconscious motivation for people? I think it's I think it's a combo plate. Mm. I think that a lot of, a lot of it is unconscious. 
And yet, there's a fair amount that's conscious. I mean, you know, Machiavelli, Machiavelli, what his name was? Yes, Machiavelli, Machiavelli yeah. Uh-huh. Thank you. Um, you know, back then, wrote all the stuff about political intrigue and manipulation and stuff. And, you know, politicians know all that stuff. So there is a certain, how much is conscious, how much is unconscious. I think you, you'll have some people, like if you read uh, some of the stuff that Hitler wrote, yeah. I mean, he was very conscious about what he was doing. Yeah. I mean, he knew exactly what he was doing. Now, you know, are there are, are people in our Senate doing that? Well, you know, maybe not so much consciously, but again, it's they, they know how to maneuver. They know how to, to get things the way they want. And, you know, if you can, you know, do that, then they'll just kind of fall into it. So, I mean, I don't think, I'm not, on the one hand, a big conspiracy theory type guy thinking there's a room with 12 Rothschilds <laughs> sitting in it that are controlling everything, right. although there is a room with a bunch of rock tiles <laughs> in it pulling a lot of strings. <laughs> exactly. I'm, I think I'm pretty much in alignment with you, Will, on that one. It's like, yeah, this whole idea, this, this kind of room, yeah, maybe, but yeah, there are, there are only a few people on the planet who do have a lot of power. Absolutely. Well, you know, and the other thing I think about people in power is, and it's this whole, I mean, the whole movie is about power and who has it and who wields it and, and claiming your own power back. But, you know, people in power are just as fearful of their powerlessness as any other human on this planet. And, and certainly one way to make oneself feel more powerful is to, uh, you know, disempower others. And that, you know, and that does happen on an unconscious level. I mean, if anyone's been married or in a relationship, I mean, you know, you, you kind of watch that dynamic happening in, in any relationship. There's always a power dynamic going, going mm-hmm. on. And, uh, so I, I always think about how, you know, like the most wounded part of people who I don't agree with very politically, you know, and, and think that they're pretty much evil. Uh, I won't name names here, but um, I think about like there's some really wounded part of them that's desperately trying to just feel okay about itself on some level. Yeah, I mean, there's that, that part of human nature that just wants to be right. You yeah. want to be right. You see that. You know, some if you, very dogmatic religious people, I think, have a bit of that going on. They just have to be right, and it's so good to know they're right and everyone else is wrong. You see that, you know, in the political realm. You see it. I mean, that's part of, you know, human nature. You yes. Just, unfortunately, it aggregates up from our little individual things up until you get to on the world stage, and you get the people who are really whacked out by it. Yeah, and, and people who are making decisions for that will affect millions, if not billions, of people's lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, you interview, I don't remember his name now, the gentleman who worked with the World Bank. John Perkins. John Perkins. And, I mean, he's a great example of someone who's, and I haven't read his book, and I actually, I do want to get it. It's, uh, it's uh, what is it, The Diaries of an Economic Hitman? Uh, Confessions of an Economic Hitman. Thank you. And, uh, and he talks about, you know, uh, this pimp and ho dynamic going on with the World Bank and third world countries and these mm-hmm. this this Faustian deal that these leaders of these countries make with the World Bank and and huge corporations and how millions of people in these third world countries then see none of this money, see none of the the resources, see see none of the benefit uh mm-hmm. of these deals. And that is that's frightening to me. That that scares me. Well, that, that's relatively scary, but the really scary thing is if you asked 
most people on the street about the World Bank, if they've even heard of it, they'll go like, oh, yeah, there are the people who make those nice loans to un- uh, underdeveloped countries so they can, they can industrialize and have a better life for everyone. Because that's the PR job that those guys put out there. Yeah, and, of course, what, they, what it is, they're basically loan sharks. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, talk about a game. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, and, and it's true. I think probably when I wasn't that involved in politics and someone would have asked me about the World Bank, I would have thought, yeah, aren't they really important? They like feed the hungry and things like that. Right. And they make all these great loans for all these really poor countries. And aren't we so wonderful here in the first world how we do that for people? <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, um, uh, I just, I, you know, so there's this whole thing that part of the film also talks about is, okay, so there's this pimp and there's this hoe dynamic going on, and most of us are the hoe. <laughs> mm-hmm. Or I was always thinking about, also thinking about the archetype of the John, you know, we're also the John, we're also willing to pay for the hoe's services on some level. So I mm-hmm. guess that, that makes us a hoe also or something. But, yeah, pretty much. Uh, yeah, exactly. But um, there's... So, so there's, so there's this dynamic goes on. And so part of the film is also about telling the story and you, and you do it so great because you tell it and you do the, the, the talking heads version of it. You do a little animation, you have this great uh, classroom where you do this little kind of drama, you know, plays out with the lecture and all of that. And it's just a great, a great way to do it because you get the information in like three or four different ways. But really, you know, the underlying story is, so then what? So we, so we see the dynamic there it is. It's in our own selves, maybe in our own relationships, maybe in our own relationship with the world and being a consumer. And it is out there with all these power structures. Um, and so he, he really asks people, you know, what, what does it take to shape your own reality, to, to really take responsibility for accepting that you have a choice in the matter? Mm-hmm. Well, really, they, I should mention, and we're talking a lot about pimps and hoes, that's really the focus for the first, I would say, third of the movie, just to get that dynamic going. But as, it, as the movie progresses, we sort of, you know, now that you have that idea, let's move on and let's take it to the world and look at the, the dynamics of, like, who you could also say tyrant victim. There's other archetypal ways to look at that. Absolutely. So our, our, our thing is, like, for the first maybe, you know, half the movie, um, it's basically, let's just look at the game. Let's look at the ways in which we are manipulated, how we, we fall into it consciously or unconsciously. But the, the, the first half of the movie is all about awareness. Just be aware of what's going on. And then really from that, it's like make, you make a, a choice and make a conscious choice. And, you know, we're not moralists or we're not, you know, ethics or we're not, you know, guru types. That's right, for sure. Right. Um, so we're not telling people what to choose. Right. We're just saying be aware of the game and you choose consciously because unlike some of the people who want to disempower people, we think the people given an awareness of what's going on and given free will and their own choice will choose what's best for them. So just choose what's, choose what's best for you. You know, if you want to go march to, you know, stop abortion and that's what you really believe and that's what you really think, you know, go do it. Right. You know, go do it. So it's really about people that empowerment of, of basically deciding for yourself and then making it happen. Well, and that certainly is where the rubber meets the road, isn't it? I mean, uh, there's so many, I don't know if it's part of human nature or 
I don't know if we're hardwired for it, but there's so many ways where we're, you know, we have choice points during the day to either stay in awareness and, and, and really think about the consequences of where we're, what we're in. Um, and sometimes, you know, it's like making the harder choice over the easier choice. And I think that's a lot of it, you know, in America, especially it's like, you know, they want to, you know, there's a lot of easy choices to make, uh, turn on the TV and just kind of disappear. And, oh, it's, you know, it's it takes only two minutes to drive through McDonald's and get a meal and it's only $5. That's great. You know, mm-hmm. but really making the harder choice. And, and, you know, I, I wonder for, uh, you know, people, what that's like at that choice point all the time, what it takes to, to make sometimes the harder choice. And what do you find for yourself? Well, for, I mean, for myself, I steam broccoli. So, you know. <laughs> Good for you. My dad loved to steam broccoli, too. Oh, there you go. So, you know, steam broccoli. So, you know, that's, that's kind of, you know, that's kind of my choice. And I don't, you know, I, I kind of don't, I don't buy into the whole materialistic thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's another choice, and that's a very conscious choice. Early on, when I got my first job out of college as a physicist, I mean, I was paid well for someone just out of college, right? Mm-hmm. And all the people who I was working with who were just out of college, you know, they were going out and buying fancy cars and all this kind of stuff and living in the high life. And I was like, no, I'm not going there because I, I didn't want to exchange my life force for money uh-huh. or things. Yes. So I always said, you know, I can, I can buy a new car or... I can have a two years of just driving around the country being a hippie, being free. And so I always chose freedom. That was, that was kind of my choice. So, you know, during those, for me, that's just, that's an easy one. Um, and well, just, you know. Well, and I think that's a beautiful thing right there because, you know, you're looking at two different values. You know, there's the value of freedom and there's the value of this thing, which for some people, you know, a nice car is an important thing for them and, it, and, it, and some sort of materialistic object they value in some ways. And and it really is, I think, about that, about connecting to what what is it that I really want? <laughs> like asking yourself that question, like what is mm-hmm. it that I really, really want? Not what I've got like habitually talked into wanting or not what I think the society wants for me. And and you know, it's it's interesting when you make those choices that go against the culture, um, you know, a part of me always feels a little left out from the culture in some way. You know, when, when I go to the supermarket, I generally don't go to the middle of the store because that's where all the processed food is. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is some part of me, some perspective in me, some archetype inside of me that wants to join the crowd, that wants to be part of that, the mainstream on some level. And it, and it, it takes a lot of effort and courage to, to say no to that every day. Well, for me, for some reason, I just never had that circuit. Mm, that's great. That's great. If anything, you know, because I have a rebellious streak, it was, <laughs> I would tend towards the other thing, you know, other thing. <laughs> Although I must say, you know, uh, full disclosure, after I sold my um, uh, software company and then I sold another one, I did circle the wagon and start buying cars. Ah. So I now have eight. <laughs> But see, that's what that's that's what we always have to do. We always always have to balance, you know, our shadow with our light, you know. So you yeah. went one direction, and now you're you now you're balancing, and I like that, yeah. you know. But it's, it didn't it didn't impinge my lifestyle, so you know, I, otherwise I wouldn't do it. But you know, it's like, well, I always wanted this, and you know, I work like a demon, so I'm gonna I'm, you know I'm gonna buy cars and have them sit in garages. That, that's, <laughs> that's beautiful. I love that. 
Um, I wanted to talk to you also about something, you know, uh, in What the Bleep and in this movie a little bit too. Uh, there, there's talk about, you know, shaping reality and how our mm-hmm. thoughts shape reality. And this is one of the things that I'm very interested in because I, from my own life experience, I see how when I'm in a certain perspective, I literally see the world a certain way. And then when I shift my perspective, it's like I live on a whole different planet. It's amazing. And it really is, you know, I like to say the words perceived reality because it's really how our, how we perceive things and, and, and the reality we're perceiving. I mean, we all agree that there's a door over there, that that part of reality is there. Um, and I have some friends who kind of like think that stuff like that, like the secret, which I'm not a huge fan of, but because I think it only gets half the story right. But um, but things like that and people who talk about shaping their reality and it's, you know, mind over matter and stuff like that. How do you see and, and how do you talk about that when people bring up like something like, oh, well, that's just magical thinking, you know, and that's something a four year old does or, you know, it's you just wish it and it's going to come true. How what where do you stand on that and, and how do you explain that sort of thing to people? Well, it depends who I'm talking to. If it's someone who says that's just a bunch of hooey. You know, it just doesn't work that way. I say, well, you know, I've had instances in my life where, for instance, people said certain things were impossible, and I just didn't believe them, and I just held the focus, and, and you know, I was able to, you know, manifest that. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is, there is that, you know, that I often say. Now, if you're talking to um, a secret diehard, mm-hmm. and my experience with that is... Uh, similar to yours yes you know people think okay you know i'm focusing on my dream board here and the mercedes (laughs) hasn't showed up in my driveway yet you know what's what's going on here what is wrong here (laughs) what is wrong i'm doing it just like they said in the movie (laughs) exactly you know it's like well you have to focus on it you also have to you know get off your ass and work possibly take some actions but you know possibly take some action (laughs) that's that's some of the two but interesting i i once um had a conversation with eckhart tolle about that Mm mm-hmm and I said, you know, Eckhart, you know, all this, I create my reality, blah, blah, blah. You know, where do you, you know, where are you on that? And he said, well, it is true that, um, you know, what's going on internally does not just affect how you perceive things, which is obvious, but also does affect the manif- things that manifest in, the, in a physical way. He said, that's absolutely true. However, if you think I create my reality, the trouble is you're leaving out the other six billion people on the planet. <laughs> yes. And we are all connected. There is a connection between people and all this mental activity, all this intention does go into a pool. Yeah. And it's all, it's, it's, a, it's a big combo plate that at times aggregates into wars or aggregates into this or the, the civil rights movement or, you know, whatever it is. But the idea that you can, you're this little island that totally creates all the reality around you yeah. is ignoring that. And I, I thought, to me, that really sticks in my head. So when people say, you know, but, you know I have had my dream board, it hasn't happened yet. I'm like, well, you have that. And also another thing I don't think the secret got into is you have to look at the other, you say, I create my reality. What level I are you coming from? Absolutely. There's a whole convention going on inside there. And, you know, we all know that the unconscious seems to be a lot of times much, much more power than our little conscious ego. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of the work I do with my clients is, you know, working with these different perspectives. And there's usually a a more immature, unhealthy version of a perspective. And then there's a more grown-up, mature, healthy version of a perspective. And, And you can really, you know, kind of see the difference. And, 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 it, and it is true. I mean, you do have to ask, you know, which, 
this thing that's wanting this or seeing this or whatever. It, it, well, it's just, it's the same thing that the, the whole movie's about. You know, I mean, it's like really whose whose intention is this, and and mm-hmm. how clean is it? And uh, but you know that that's the big argument because I mean, in America here, we all get a we all get a say, we all get a point of view, we all get the right to say it. And, uh, you know, that's kind of where the, or- the oranges and the apples meet up with people because you have the right to say something. It doesn't mean that it's the healthiest perspective or but then again, who am I to say what's healthy? You know, so it's yeah, it's it's you know, I think it's all about conversation ultimately. Um, one of the things I I heard you, I believe you said it in the film, you were talking, uh, you quoted Buckminster Fuller. Mm-hmm. And um, and when you and when you quoted him, which was the quote was, you know, was humanity a successful experiment or not? Um, I, you know, I, I'm, of course, think about my father a lot in his work. And, you know, one of the things my dad used to talk about was and had a perspective on was that, you know, oh, boy, this, I think maybe possibly now there's proof that the species is circling the drain, that this was not a successful experiment. And and yet I would say to him, yeah, Dad, that's great. I'm I have forty, fifty more years on the planet. I need it. I need it not to circle yet. <laughs> if we could just. So I'm like, I always think about. Well, maybe it is circling, but maybe part of my job is to just slow the circling of the drain. I don't know, but but I wanted to know, like, what's your perspective right now on the planet and humanity and where we're going. I mean, a lot of people feel there's a big transformation happening and, and certainly in the Middle East, it's quite amazing to watch uh, the transformation. People are waking up uh, all over the place and there's a lot of crisis and a lot of chaos, which, you know, kind of bodes for this, you know, we're in the middle of a transformational time. What is your take on that? What is your hopes? What are your dreams? What's, what's your point of view? Well, it's definitely circling the drain. I mean, because like Bucky said, we're going to find out now whether it's a successful experiment of nature or not. Um, but, you know, my experience is most humans, myself included, really don't get serious about changing until your back's against the wall. <laughs> until the shit really hits the fan, you know, most people kind of get complacent. Yep. Well, it's the same is true of humanity. It's going to have to get really nasty and really... We're a lot worse. I mean, the economy is going to have to fall apart, which yeah. is a whole other discussion, but it will, because um, it's based on a Ponzi scheme. But, you know, all that stuff has to f- fall apart before people really start, you know, transforming. So it's one of these chaos point things. And if you look at chaos theory, I'm nerding out now, I know, but, you know, chaos theory, before a big transition, things get very erratic. Yes. You know, this is in all natural systems. You see it very erratic. And it's, it's really not clear how it's going to settle into the new state. Yep. I once read this. I read um, some channeled information because I, I love it. I get a kick out of it. And they said, you know, in the galaxy that we're in, the planet Earth is this huge experiment <laughs> because most planets are much more homogeneous. Mm. You know, with all these different, all different religions, different races, different languages, it's this experiment to see whether humanity can transcend all that and come together. So on the inner planes, there's like a, a jammed parking lot around the planet Earth, everyone watching to see whether <laughs> we're going to pull it off or not, and no one knows. Right, right. You know, they're taking side bets up there. <laughs> you know, side bets on your next incarnation, you know, you can get there. Um, you know, that's what they're doing. In fact, you could do a really funny Saturday Night Live bit on that. But that's, <laughs> 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, and I'm a bit of a geek when it comes to chaos theory too. And you know, and okay. I, I do hope when we get to this, what they call the bifurcation point, you yeah. know, that uh, that it all moves forward into the next thing. Of course, I don't know, you know, and, and it, 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 it's 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 exciting times to be around, but it's it's going to take time. And you're right, it is. Things are going to have to get much worse before before they get better, if they do get better. And, um, and it's a slow, slow, slow journey. I mean, you look at humanity and, and over however many hundreds of thousands of years since we started walking upright, you know, it takes time for stuff. So, it's... Well, I think it was a slow journey. <laughs> That's true, yes. You're right. I yeah. think, I mean, if you look, it is true. You, know, yeah. you know, I think about my grandfather. My grandfather, you know, was born and it was, it was horse and buggy. Yep. My granddad was horse and buggy. Wow. Wow. And, you know, so here we are and, you know, you can now book a flight into outer space. I mean, it's like crazy, the the acceleration. So everything is accelerating and people are being bombarded by all this stuff. So, you know, and again, this is part of the the chaos theory that the swings are so uh, wild and they yeah. happen so quickly mm-hmm. that what would maybe transform in three hundred years over the Renaissance is you know happening in <laughs> two weeks. Happening happening during the Super Bowl. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Well, Will, thank you so much for coming on and discussing this kind of stuff. I'm a geek for this kind of stuff, so it was really fun having you. And uh, everyone, I know what's happening with the film. Is it going to be out in theaters? Is it on DVD? How how can my audience connect with it? Well, what we're doing is we're doing a little, a little bit of limited screenings here and there. If you go to our website, ghettophysics.com, you know we post there when we're doing just you know one night here, one night there, one night here, one just to slowly get the word out there. And we're gearing up towards some sort of event um, early fall where we'll do a simulcast in like 20 theaters or so around the country. And at that point, with the book, I'm writing a book, by the way. Fantastic. Um, and because uh, basically at the end of the film, people are like, wow, that's great. This gives me a whole new perspective. Uh, but what do I do? Mm-hmm. So the book mm-hmm. is a little bit more practical. About, okay, here's the stuff to do. Here's Beautiful. stuff to look at. Beautiful. Yeah. Well, then people are hungry for that. People want to know, okay, now what? So now what? that's fantastic. Yep. Well, I'll look forward to that. And maybe in the fall we'll have you and, and E-Ray back on and we'll, uh, we'll have an, another discussion about this kind of stuff. Thank you so much for being here today. Oh, thanks for, for chatting. I mean, you and I are like preaching to the choir. Uh, <laughs> but yeah. that's always fun, too. Well, you never know. You never know. You know, it's, it's, it's whatever little information gets out there is always good. No, I mean, you and I are the are choir for each. We, we, I know. We, I get it. Yeah, I'm, I'm not, yeah, not going to push too hard up against anything. <laughs> All right. You have a great evening, Will. You, you too. Thanks again. Thank you. Well, everyone, I hope you enjoyed that. A little different than the normal fair here. We have some crazy comedians on, and we're always talking fun stuff. But, uh, but you know, this stuff fascinates me. And uh, it's, you know, but like Will said, you know, go out and check it out for yourself and, uh, and think about what perspective you're in. So to wrap up today, I just want to mention that next week I will not have a live show. I'll be replaying some show because I will be out of town because next Saturday, Saturday, February 26th, I'll be in Mill Valley at the, at the 147 Throckmorton Theater with this really cool gang of people I hang out with called Mind the Gap. And our show is going to be comedy, music, spoken word. I'm going to be on stage with Lorraine Newman, Rick Overton, Rick Shapiro, Dylan Brody, Chris Pinna, Gary Shapiro, Chris Bono, Gary Stockdale, and the fabulous magician uh, Andrew Goldenhirsch. 
I want to thank everyone. If you want to find me, you can find me at WFADradio at gmail.com. Find me on Twitter, Kelly Carlin. Find me on Facebook, Kelly Carlin. I want to thank everyone who makes this possible for me, which is Barbara, my producer, my husband, Johnny Dam, who runs the station here, all the fabulous people out there on Facebook and Twitter, all my friends, Polymine Commune, all you craziness. Uh, I want to thank the universe because I just have to today because it's so groovy to say that. And I'm going to play a little song here at the end. This is called Some People by a gentleman named Ross Falzone. And uh, he can be his stuff can be found on iTunes or at his website, Ross Falzone. And this is called Some People. Uh, you guys have a beautiful uh, weekend. Have fun and uh, stay crazy. Love you. Bye. Listening to New Dissident Radio. Uh, Jack, they, they already know that. You don't need to tell them. Oh. <laughs> Sorry, never mind.